grieving. Some families will be lost to one another forever. To those of you who face the difficulties of reconnecting with family and establishing ongoing relationships, we say sorry. We offer this apology in the hope that it will assist your healing and in order to shine a light on a dark period of our nation's history. To those who have fought for the truth to be heard, we hear you now. You're listening to Adopt Perspective, a podcast for anyone affected by adoption. I'm one of your hosts, Jo Sparrow. This podcast is a production of Jigsaw Queensland Post-Adoption Support Service. However, the views expressed are those of the people participating, not necessarily Jigsaw Queensland. The podcast discusses adult themes and listener discretion is advised. Hi everyone, it's Jo Sparrow here. I'm the president of Jigsaw Queensland and the host of Adopt Perspective podcast. Today's guest was born and adopted in Boothville Salvation Army Hospital in Brisbane in 1960 and was adopted one week later. Diana Jackson has since gone on to make contact with both her mother and her father and knows from personal experience that adoption reunions can be complex and don't always run a straightforward trajectory. That was a hard word to get out. Welcome to Adopt Perspective, Diana. I'm so happy to have you join us. Hi, Jo. Thanks for having me on your podcast today. And um, it's okay if I call you D. I know you have a preference for D. That's fine, yes. Excellent. Um, Dee, could I start by asking you to share with us what it was like for you growing up adopted? Um, well, I guess I didn't really know any differently, but for me it was good. It was fine. It was a good experience. So I was adopted at a very early age, and I'm sure that makes it a lot easier. And uh, my brother was adopted at 22 months, and I think it was, you know, a lot of things had a lot of things happen you know before that age I think it was harder for him so I think that was a that was a good thing um I always knew I was adopted I don't ever remember being told I was adopted I just must have absorbed it from a very early age and my parents were very open about it um I also had a cousin who was adopted and some other friends who were adopted and nobody ever really made a big deal about it I was very curious about it though growing up you know I did I'm a curious person by nature yeah so you know I did you know I did talk about it but that that conversation was fine about being adopted in our house <laughs> in our household so overall um it was quite a good experience I did come um my father came from a very big family I think uh with incredible resemblances and we you know I remember being about eight and going to one of his family reunions and just noticing how everyone looked the same I didn't look unlike my father but not quite like they did Uh, but um, there was a huge family tree up on a wall and I remember one of my aunties saying oh they have to write in um, you know Diana as adopted and and I heard that and it was at that moment I think I really fully recognised that or first experienced that feeling of being a little bit different. Yeah. yeah. So there was there was that. Yeah. 
I asked mum about it and she said, oh, that's actually the proper way to do a family tree. She wasn't saying anything nasty. That's what you're supposed to do. It's a, like a bloodline. But she said, oh, you're still family. You're still on there. But yeah, yeah, it did. It just was, I think, the first time it really struck me as being different. Yeah. I've always been kind of very, well, obsessed. I don't know if that's the right word, but I've always really loved looking at family resemblances in people and all that sort of thing. I've always really noticed that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. You mentioned that you had like other um, family members who were adopted and friends. Um, I found when I was growing up that even though I also had other family members that were adopted, it was kind of like unspoken. I felt like I wasn't really allowed to talk to people about it or I don't know if allowed's the right word and certainly I didn't feel it from my parents, but maybe from their parents that it just was don't talk about it, particularly because I was like a curious kind of person. I'd almost felt like maybe I'd infect <laughs> them with my negativity or something. Did you, how did you find it? Did you talk about it with them? Um, my cousin was a little bit younger than me. Um, and I think that we didn't see a lot of each other, but I think that we did talk about it at mm. times. So we didn't see a lot of each other. So there was probably, I don't have a lot of memory of in-depth conversation, but I did recently see her. So. I mean, she'd be in her late 50s now and we were talking and she um, said that um, it was mainly her father that she could talk openly with and he's passed away and now it's her mother, my aunt, and um, she doesn't really talk about it and she feels she can't really pursue it until her mother um, passes away. Her mother's in her 90s and I said to her, well, you know, I wouldn't leave it too long. But anyway. Yeah, that's the problem, isn't it? Mm. It is a, a ticking yeah. clock these yeah, days. Yeah, so I guess, it? yeah, uh, she obviously had some misgivings about talking about it um, with her parents, but certainly not with me. Yeah. yeah. So for me growing up, um, the opening of the adoption records here in Queensland sort of coincided with me coming of age. So I was 19 when they opened up. So at an age where I was legally allowed to start looking, I was able to look, but you um, were born 10 years before I was, so you had a bit longer. So you said you're always curious. I'm kind of wondering how that curiosity manifested into whether you wanted to search. Well, I did. I wanted to search pretty much as, as soon as I thought I was old enough. I had an immense amount of anger that I was not allowed to access my records. I had huge anger. I just couldn't believe that a public servant was allowed to know who I was, Mm -hmm. but I wasn't allowed to know who I was. Yeah. Um, We read later that um, people born before 1964 actually have adoption orders. Uh, Their parents have adoption orders. And my mother had forgotten about that and she went searching for them and she couldn't find them and she she had forgotten that they were actually with the solicitor and she did find them eventually at the last minute before the laws changed. I don't, I'm sure that wasn't deliberate because she wrote a lot of letters on my behalf, trying, or well, on her behalf, trying to get uh, copies of those orders. Um, yeah, so that I tried lots of different things, you know, but I had, only I think at that point we had only non-identifying information and it was so scant it was just so scant I I just couldn't really get anywhere and there were just roadblocks you know and like I, I'd write and say you know 
do you have a um you know do you have a year list for this year at univers at this university or something and it was just no that's all private you can't give out that information so yeah it was very frustrating for me as a young person and I was I did I still do hold a lot of anger. I think it was a really terrible thing to do to people. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I can remember that too. It always felt like it, it was um, almost like a screamy anger I used to feel like, you know, always just sort of sat like a core in my throat, like, and you couldn't really express it. But I was so um, upset that somebody had the power to give me, like just behind some wall somewhere, lay all the answers I wanted. Yeah. And they knew it was there and they could go look at it, but they couldn't tell me. I know, it's utterly frustrating. And then, you know, you hear lots of stories of people where they went and had interviews with social workers or whatever and the social workers left the papers where they could read them, Mm. but I didn't ever have that opportunity to do that. So, yeah, but, no, I held an enormous amount of anger and I did, um, I don't suppose I really actively lobbied, but I wrote a lot of letters, Mm. but it didn't make any difference. You just get a stock standard reply back, you know. It sounds this like your adopted family were supportive of your desire to search. Was that the case or? They were and um, I never really sort of questioned it. I never felt awkward. I don't know. We'd talked about it quite a lot. They knew that I was a really curious child and I had to know everything. Yeah. <laughs> and I think my mum was probably like that anyway. So, yeah, no, they were fine and I think they, I think they realised that I needed to do it and I also um, I think they felt secure enough in our relationship for me to do that. Yeah. Yeah. So can you tell us about your search? How did it start and how did it go? So um, eventually they started contact lists and I don't think... um, there was not, you know, you had to put your date of birth forward. None of nothing this ever is came to the that. laws opening. You mean? Yes, and then they started. I think just before the laws opened, the government did start a contact register, but nothing. Then my mother found the papers. So other states had already started opening up searches and so forth, and um, I just couldn't get anywhere with what I had and I eventually contacted a social worker who worked for an organisation called Birthlink. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've heard of Birthlink. And um, and so I paid him to go and do the search and he had a lot of difficulty and it took quite a long time and it turned out, well, it transpired that um, my biological mother had um, just used her middle name. She hadn't used her proper name. Yeah, and there was slightly different spelling of the middle name. So it took him a long time to find her. So I really started searching in earnest too because all that coincided really as well with the birth of my first child. So that it just became really quite um, intense. And when my child was born, I sort of had this sudden realisation, wow, that must have been really difficult, Mm. really difficult. Yeah. So then, um, anyway, he did find her and um, wrote to her and she said that she didn't want contact but she would answer some questions. So I wrote out some questions and sent them off. Um, She didn't answer who my father was but she, you know, answered some generic questions and um, really um, 
that was it. He, the social worker said to me, well, you know, you can't force her. She hasn't told her family. Um, her parents obviously, well, not, not obviously, but her parents knew and her brother and sister knew, but it had never been spoken of again, mm-hmm. ever. Like she was told to forget about it as she left the hospital and that was it. No one ever spoke about it again. So um, I just had to sit with that, you know, really at that time. It was in, It was difficult. Then when my second child, I was pregnant with my second child, which was four years later, I did that thing you're not supposed to do and I just rang her up. And um, I said, oh, you won't know who I am, but I'm just ringing about this. And she just interrupted me and said, no, I do know who you are. I said, how do you mean? And she said, well, you're my daughter. I've been expecting this call for years. And so we did talk and she did actually uh, tell me who my father was. She has no recollection of doing that at all. She can't believe that she did that. Um, And uh, she was quite busy that day and she said, can you ring me back in a week if I don't ring you first? And I said, okay. So I rang her back in a week because she didn't ring and then that's when she said, I can't eat, I can't sleep, I can't do this and hung up. That was So that was that. So I sat on that, I sat there with my father's name but biological father's name, which was extremely common, <laughs> thinking, okay. <laughs> well, she did say that uh, he came from uh, a property near theirs where she grew up. And so I just started looking, and as it turns out, I was extremely fortunate that I did get the right one because he also had a cousin that lived nearby that was um, the same name. Yeah. Anyway, um, I had a, you know... So I suppose it was already 2001 by this stage. I had a um, a dream that I needed to contact him now or it might be too late. And um, I suppose in the meantime I'd lost my my adoptive father and, and so I thought, well, you know, I can't really ignore that. Um, and I just had no clue what to say or how to do it or anything and... I'd gone to work that day and was walking down the street in Nambour I was working and there was a play on in town called, uh, I think it's called Love Child or something oh, like yes, that. Oh, yes, yeah. Uh, anyway, it was all about adoption and I literally got the last seat and I went there and this the woman in the play was writing a letter um, to her father telling her that she existed Um and so I just used her words and I did, it took, a, I think it took me, it took me many, many weeks to send it. And when I put it in the letterbox, I felt sick and I wanted to reach in and pull it out. But anyway, I'd written all over it, confidential, I'd stapled it, but there was still no guarantee that I wasn't going to blow someone's life up because I don't think I mentioned that he didn't know I existed. He had no idea. Unless, you know, um, my biological mother had said unless her brother had told him there would be no way that he would know and she didn't think he would. So I got a call oh, maybe, I don't know, maybe six weeks later or something, I got a call from an adoption service in uh, interstate 
who said, look, he'll need more information about who who the mother is and so forth. And I, I just said my reluctance is that she hasn't really told anyone and she has a family and they're all close, you know, they live close by. And um, they said, well, we'll be, you know, we can't really proceed without it, but we'll be as sensitive as we can and he seems like a really reasonable person. So I did um, say the name and he confirmed that that was definitely a possibility and then said that he'd need time, he'd need 12 months or something to think about it, tell his family, all those things. Yeah. Um. And so after 14 months I hadn't heard anything and I'd actually just had enough. It was really stressing me out. And I just rang them up and said, uh, I don't care which what, uh, which way the answer goes, but I need an answer. I'm just, uh, you know, it's either yes or no. It's it's going to, a meeting will proceed or some sort of contact with the city because I just need to, you know, put it to bed. Anyway, he decided that he would uh, come and see me with a chaperone and all those sort of things. And I said, well, actually, I'd just really rather just, you know, maybe write some emails or letters or have some phone calls. And so we did that and he'd sort of indicated he'd probably need DNA testing. And anyway, he sent me a photo of himself and I just, um, I opened it and I could see the resemblance straight away. Anyway, um, I sent my photo back and he never asked for a DNA test after that. Like, it, you know, it mm-hmm. was, well, it looked pretty obvious. Yeah. So, yeah, so eventually um, we did meet and he didn't bring a chaperone. His family really struggled, I think, at first, but um, I did later meet um I did later meet them and things seemed to be all right mm-hmm. at the time. Yeah. And, you know, so we first went down and um and met in Sydney and for, you know, over the duration of a few days, spent some time together and, and that was good. And then he came for holidays and things like that. Um, during, I guess, during that period, that year that I was waiting for him to make up his mind, his his wife um, decided without his knowledge uh, that um, she would actually go and check with with the biological mother's brother, who they knew well. Um, I think I think her motives were probably um, well intentioned, but anyway. Um, she she went and asked him and he said yes um yes she did have a child in that year and um we've never spoken of it since and 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 my um, biological father's wife said well you know i think that um my husband's going to go ahead with a meeting so it could come out of the bag so it's probably better if she tells her family now so he rang my biological mother and um, she decided to tell her family. So she said it was going to take a little bit of time because her son was going to, um, he was going, he was travelling around Australia. So he just tells this really funny story that they were all at 
at a um, house for Christmas, a beach house for Christmas, and she just, late at night, she just stood in front of the TV and said, I have something to tell you, and they were all sort of like, yeah, what, trying to look around at the TV, and she said, um, you know, before I was married, I had a daughter, and so they they just said it was just one of those moments in life that they were just all speechless looking at her. Well, that's the last thing they expected. Mm. Holding on to that secret all of those years <laughs> and then I'm like a little overwhelmed just thinking about it. <laughs> what it was like for her. Oh, yeah. It must have been pretty ghastly. Anyway, yeah. um, fortunately, her husband was just a man and, um, you know, they all coped. They coped really well. And they're quite protective of her because in some ways she was frail. And, you know, her her son now says to me, oh, it just made so much sense when we were, you know, when she said it, every, just so many things just made sense. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. I'm oh, being yeah. teared so, up like these secrets, like it stops <laughs> us from knowing people fully, you know, and then when we yeah. know them, like you said, the pieces fall together and you go, okay, this makes sense. I get to know this person properly now. Yeah, so you know, she held, and and probably to a large degree still does hold a lot of shame. She feels mm. very ashamed. She feels that she disappointed her parents. She yeah. it changed the whole direction of her life. Um, she was incredibly bright. Well, she still is incredibly bright still alive, but she was incredibly bright, and and she won a scholarship to university, you know, back in the 60s and she was really loving it and um, it just stopped everything. Yeah. She said her sister um, came to visit her one day and she was like, just because no one had seen her for a little while. She was seven months pregnant. She was wearing an overcoat and her sister just went, oh, what's going on? And said, oh, you're pregnant. And then went home and told their parents, and their parents came and and picked her up, took home, and told everyone she had, I think, rheumatic fever. Yeah. And then brought her over the border to Queensland for the birth. And um, the story goes that she was given a wedding ring. So she wasn't, even though Boothville was for unmarried mothers, she wasn't booked in as an unmarried mother. She was booked in, I think she must have been booked in as a private patient or something because mm-hmm. she was given a ring and told to say she was uh, married and her husband was in the Navy or something. And um, and she had to invent a fake name and she drove past Marshall Batteries so she became Mrs Marshall. <laughs> <laughs> you know. So, yeah, and um, she said even though she was with married mothers, she could hear them talking about the unmarried mothers in the next ward, you know, and, like, we shouldn't have to be here with them and all this sort of thing. Yeah, and there were screens all around her bed. And then um, uh, she said uh, she didn't really, she didn't look at me. I don't know if she was offered a look. She felt like she couldn't. She could hear me crying. And then pretty much a couple of days later, she went home and the parents said, well, just put that behind you, dear, you know. And she was offered the option for her father to go and um, see my biological father and and request him to marry. And she said, no, she didn't, no way she wanted that. Mm -hmm. 
So apparently it's just a very innocent story that could happen to anyone. They, um, I think she was 20 and he was 23 and they went to a party, you know, a big tennis party out west and a bit of alcohol and, you know, dance afterwards and, you know, uh, yeah, no really ongoing relationship. They obviously had known each other all their lives. Yeah. Yeah, just, yeah. So you have got to meet her now? Yes. So, yes, so after that, after she told her family, then she came and, yeah, she came and met me. Yeah. And um, that was okay. You know, it was okay. It's always been difficult. It's been very difficult. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We have, like, we, we seem to be all right when we're together and then, I don't know, it's, it's just it's just always been really difficult. Yeah. Yeah, I, so they'll really go long periods of time where neither of us want to bother the other one. You know, her, it's a bit of a standing joke, I think, with her sons that we're actually really alike in that way. But, you know, I know what it comes from. I mean, they think it's sort of a personality characteristic, but I think it's really from a lot of trauma yeah. Yeah, of fear of abandonment or rejection or whatever and shame. Yeah. yeah. Because you so don't, much. you know, you, I don't want to symbolise somebody else's shame. I don't want to be thought of as someone else's shame or represent someone else's shame. No, I don't want that. Mm. I was going to ask. I mean, we've heard a lot about how it's impacted everybody else. How has how has it been for you? All of these revelations, and you know, like I said at the beginning, reunions don't often follow the straight trajectory. There usually quite bumpy and in and out and certainly that's been my story as well how has it been for you well I've learned a lot about patience which is really interesting because I don't know I've learned a lot about patience and you know I've learned a lot about having to see everybody else's perspective having to see all the perspectives you know Mm -hmm. I've um I've had a you know, supportive family too. You know, my husband's supportive and my kids have been because the kids have been through this journey pretty much their whole lives as well. And um, unfortunately we didn't get to meet um, my biological parents before my father died, but my mother met them both and, you know, that was that was quite good. I've gone way off topic. What was the question again? Oh, what has it affected me? Yeah. Yeah, so it's just been really up and down and I have, some really um you know I have some really difficult moments of just thinking look do I try again do I push you know is the is it just that she's sort of reticent or he's you know because he my biological father's had a stroke now so it's difficult he used to be good at contact but now it's difficult you just think oh yeah and just a lot of worry about whether pushing or intruding or and then worry that, oh, maybe I'm just wasting time with all this emotional, you know. (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot of that. Yeah, it's a lot. Yeah, and, you know, I hadn't even really thought of it as trauma either. Even though I'm a social worker, I guess, um, because nobody ever really talked about it in in terms of... um, trauma when I was young I guess around the time 
I don't know, a few things happened. I, one of my friend's mother-in-laws was a social worker in New Zealand. So New Zealand had changed their laws several years earlier than Australia. And that was her job. She specialised in reunions for people who had been adopted, the mother-in-law's job. And she'd come over on a holiday and we had a fantastic conversation about it. And it was the first time anyone had sort of talked on any, you know, um, professional level or you know, knowledge of a lot of different experiences. And she was saying, you know, all these feelings happen. And then I sort of started reading about it. And I guess that was the first time I ever read anything sort of negative about adoption that I hadn't really thought about, you know, um, that whole sort of forced adoption scenario. So that was in the back of my mind. I was pretty horrified. I thought, oh, my parents would be horrified to think that people thought like that about them or whatever. so it was sort of in the back of my mind. But then later on, um, when I went and did um, a, a training to do trauma work, uh, I was just sitting there and they were saying one of the most important things you have to ask people is about their early life, if they're adopted, if they're fostered, you know. I was just like, oh, and I, my ears just pricked up. And then they talked about, you know, all the trauma that it's even, you know, in utero and all this sort of stuff. So I've since done lots and lots of reading and I understand it now, but I remember at the time thinking, oh, gosh, that sort of explains a lot. And so from thinking that I was pretty okay with it, I sort of actually was able to explore a lot of um, deeper feelings. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, certainly the thing that I struggle with the most too, Um. Was I traumatized? How could I be traumatized by something I didn't remember? Um, you know, I didn't know this person. How do I miss them? How, you know, what is going on? And yet at the same time, I could see how I was being moved in ways in my life and I didn't understand why I was seeing mm. things that way or why I did things I did. Um, and it took a lot of work for me to get past that and and not feel like, um, I guess, get past my prejudices of being a victim of something, you know, all those things I'm <laughs> yeah. rejecting. Um, yeah, and it was a lot, but it was also the beginning of me understanding myself and being able to understand when I am being triggered by something or what might sit behind my decision-making or that kind of thing. Yeah, and then, you know, I just sort of, after I'd learned about, you know, what happens when babies are crying for their mothers and the mothers don't come and the babies go through the fight and flight and then eventually they go into that freeze state. And I just remembered something that my mum had said to me that when I was a baby, I I didn't sleep a lot and I used to just lie there. And she said, your eyes would just follow me all around the room all the time. And I thought, oh, gosh, I thought that was really cute at the time. But now I'm thinking, wow. Yeah, what's uh, actually it's not good to go to sleep. And where are you? I was a little bit anxious, <laughs> yeah. Oh, but, yeah. Know, I was a shy child, but I think you know, I think I would have been anyway, fairly uh, shy and reserved. But, um, overall, I think I was just so lucky that my experience. Uh, with my parents has just mediated or mitigated a lot of things that happened for some other people mm-hmm. yeah that I've met yeah, yeah it has re- it's been really helpful yeah so I guess now that you're um at this point of reunion I know um adoption is lifelong like there's plenty more experiences in life that are going to come up and impact how you would answer this question but I guess so far what have these connections brought to your life 
Um, well, I used to think a lot about identity and, you know, and I've met all these people and I've walked all these yards now and I just realised that at the end of the day I'm just me. I'm just me, you know. I have all these different influences and it's just fascinating and I love doing my family tree and seeing all the stories and, you know, just I think it's great. So I did come to that, you know, yes, I'm, I have influences from a whole lot of different places but I'm basically at the end of the day I'm just me. As far as family goes, I've really, uh, I feel like I'm very lucky that I've had my own family and now I've got grandchildren and, you know, I think that has really helped me. Um, but family can mean a whole different lot of things, you know. I have some connections in my adoptive family that are very important to me. Some some have just gone by the wayside, but I think that's that, that's a normal thing. In, in many families, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, I think I did notice that um, after my mother died that um, it was a lot harder to connect. I think she'd been the glue for a lot of that in the family, but, uh, you know. Um, so I guess, yeah, just um, I think family is really, for me, I kind of look forwards with family. I have, out of all of that, um, I have really, I guess, connected most with my uh, half-brother on my maternal side. We actually, when uh, he first wrote me a letter, my daughter said, oh, my goodness, he writes just like you, even all the <laughs> dashes and all the things. He writes just like you. I think I think we're quite alike. Yeah. We're the only ones with green eyes anyway. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I think we're I th quite a lot. Oh, not in every way, because in some ways he's very extrovert, and I'm not. But you know, I just, yeah. I just think he's on that kind of wavelength. And um, I do worry that he thinks he has to compensate for his mum because she's has struggled so much. But I hope, you know, I hope that he, that he doesn't feel that he has to do that. Yeah, well, I mean, this is a connection he missed out on having you in his life growing up as well. And sometimes those relationships with siblings or cousins or, you know, extended family are the less complex to navigate and they, because they just don't have that, you know, um, epicenter of trauma on each side, you know, or all those things. And sometimes mm. I find that they're the ones that are a little bit easier and less stressful to to navigate. Yeah. Yeah, possibly. I've, uh, I didn't, so each of my biological parents went on to have three sons, which I just think is really ironic. It <laughs> just makes me laugh a little bit. But anyway, <laughs> um, I have I met all of them except one um, brother who uh, had a disability and he's since died and I didn't get to meet him, But um, which is really sad. But, um, you know, they're, they're a pretty good bunch of guys really. But, you know, uh, the youngest ones are a lot younger than me. So yeah. I did recently probably meet my, my um, biological father's son the second time and actually got to spend time with him. And he and his family and he, he are delightful and, you know, they were really welcoming as well. Um, so that was good. But uh, I guess... You know, I had a really wise colleague who always used to use the phrase, you need to moderate your expectations. Yeah. <laughs> it's like one of the things. And you do because I I sort of um, 
you know, bit the bullet and decided that they were getting old and I needed to make another effort to sort of reconnect. And um, I went on a big road trip and I went down to see them and I actually had a really lovely time with each of them. Um, and before I'd arrived, my biological father's um, son had contacted me and said, look, I think, you know, we'll we'll just um, take mum on a holiday while you see dad. And I said, oh, has something happened? Oh, no, no, it's not you. It's, you know, just. And so I think some difficulty probably has in you know, happened in that relationship now, which is really unfortunate because we had a really great time. And then um, when when I rang him up afterwards to say that I was home from that trip, he said, it's not you. I just, it's very difficult with the family and I just can't talk to you. And I haven't heard from him since and I've been very reluctant to to do to really follow that up because I think you know if I ring his sons and say what's happening well it's not really fair to involve them and obviously something's happened you know but they're elderly and there's no time and I just think it's really you know this limited time and I just think that's really hard yeah to lose the opportunity now you know and to still think after all these years, you know, the shame and the grief of it all, it just keeps, it just never goes. It doesn't go away. No. No. I mean, there's sometimes. I think it's, we... it would for me, but I it can't for them, I don't think. I mean, maybe I've been um, irreversibly changed too, but that generation's just so hard. Yeah. I think for adoptive people, like the trauma gets compounded by things like this, you know. Well, it go, does. Yeah. yeah. It just keeps coming back over a little things. And that's for us, I think, where it resonates the most, where it not resonates, mm. not the right word, but that's where it hits us the most, I think. Yeah. yeah and, and you know, it's, I don't know. I don't know. This, it, you just have to protect yourself at some point, you know. You can't take any more risks. Yeah. So, but I'm glad I had those times because, you know, at first I had to question myself and I thought, did, I, did we really have a good time? Yeah. Like I had a good time. And then I thought, oh, you, you just can't question it. you just got to take what you can and just understand that there's lots and lots of stuff that comes with adoption. Yeah. That's it. It, it hits those rejection, abandonment, things that just sit inside of us, whether we're aware of them or not, they're there, oh, yeah. ready to get touched. Yeah. 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 So, you know, I, I'm in many ways enormously lucky that I've had the, um, that I, I know exactly who I am. I've since done my DNA. It's all verified, you know. I've actually, I know who I am. Yeah. I know, you know, a lot about where I come from, 76% Scottish, which made me laugh. I had no idea. Um, so I'm very lucky that I've met these people and I still do have contact uh, or can have contact with the half-brothers. I, I will always have contact with my um, biological mother's son, I'm sure. 
Uh, so, yeah, for that, I'm really grateful. I'm not ungrateful. But, yeah, you know, the, 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 those intense periods of meeting and then nothing is just, just yeah, just does my head in yeah. a bit. Yeah. yeah, I really hear you, Dee. Um, and it's strange <laughs> because, like, you know, sometimes those periods of non-contact and stuff are initiated by them, but I look at my own life and sometimes they're really initiated by me because it's too much. Um, it's like such well, a push exactly. and pull, isn't it? On both yeah. sides, such a push and pull. It's such, um, yes, yeah, I don't and know. Think, I can never oh, think of the right for, words. Yeah, just for once could they reach out, just for once. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. At one point I actually made my poor husband ring up and reestablish contact after my um, birth father had a stroke um, and that was a good thing to do, I think, because it we just realised, you know, that he had a aphasia and he really couldn't communicate the same anymore. Mm. Yeah, so I'm not sorry that I've done it. It's been a huge journey. I never expected it to be that hard. And um, really it shouldn't have been, but I guess that's just what happens when you have a society that has secrets and shame. Yeah. yeah. See, I'm... So grateful for you coming on the podcast and sharing your story um, with us. I know it's going to resonate with a lot of people and it certainly does with me. And um, I know that it brings a lot up for people and, and probably for yourself as well. And I really appreciate you being vulnerable enough to share that. And I know you did it in a spirit to help other people. And I just want to say thank you. Thanks, Joe. Thanks. And I'll add um, any relevant links um, about reunion, I think would be good ones to have up there on the podcast notes page of the Jigsaw Queensland website. Mm -hmm. And thank you to our listeners for joining us. Um, and if you have a story that you'd like to share with us and you'd like to be interviewed for the podcast, just jump onto the main podcast page of the Jigsaw Queensland website and complete the prospective guest form that you'll find there. And just remember that um, Adopt Perspective Can Be Andy is listened to by people all over the world. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to the Adopt Perspective podcast. If you'd like to find out more, go to the podcast page on www.jigsawqueensland.com and you'll find a wealth of information and resources on the website. If you reside in Queensland, you can reach Jigsaw Queensland's Forced Adoption Support Service on toll-free 1800 210313 or you can call Jigsaw on 07 double three five eight double six double six if you live in another state of australia you can still call the forced adoption support service number and your call will be answered by the forced adoption support service in the state that you're calling from in every other state relationships australia operates this service a big thank you to matt sparrow for composing and recording our original theme music until next time, I'm Joe Sparrow saying farewell from Adopt Perspective, a podcast for anyone affected by adoption.